This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 270. And the quote of the day is from Henry Ford, who said, Coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. And beyond, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, and this is 270 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I usually don't mess up my words like I just did. But uh, if you if this is your first time listening, be sure to go to drummersresource.com. All of the episodes are there. They're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that fun stuff. Uh, now that that's out of the way, I want to tell you about my guest for today. Today, wow, that rhyme. I'm a poet and uh, I don't know. It. Anyway, so the guest for today is Chris Myers and Chris is the drummer for Umphreys McGee. He's been the, the drummer for Umphreys McGee since 2003 and Umphreys McGee is a jam band. They're in that they're in the jam band circuit. So we talk a lot about the ideas of collaboration. We talk a lot about the ideas of, of writing styles, of of learning, you know, jam bands typically have a lot of tunes. They have a lot of changes in the tunes. They have a way of improvising on stage. So we dig deep into that as well uh, to talk about how he learned it and learned it quickly because I, he had to learn all the tunes uh, in a in a very short amount of time. So really interesting to talk to Chris. He's originally from Chicago and he went to um, Elmhurst College and went through the the jazz program and. From there, uh, he also was enrolled in DePaul University where he got a master's degree in jazz drumming and was a member of the Rob Parton Orchestra. And then he's also worked with jazz artists like Nicholas Payton, Diane Schur, and Randy Brecker. Aside from that, through the the dealings with Humphreys McGee, he shared the stage with a variety of acts over the years like Buddy Guy and Dave Matthews, Huey Lewis, Peter Tosh, Coco Taylor, Phil Lesh, Bob Weir, Mike Gordon from Fish, Warren Haynes, Ivan Neville, Les Claypool, and the list just goes on and on and on. So a really well-rounded player who's played uh, just a ton of different styles, had, has had a ton of different experiences, and has just been touring relentlessly all over the country for a very long time. So super excited to have him. A special shout out to Jimmy Chamberlain for connecting the two of us. He was gracious enough to connect Chris and I, and I do appreciate appreciate that. Excuse me. So Jimmy, if you're listening, thank you so much. I appreciate everything that you do for me. I, I really do uh, appreciate all of your insights that you've, that you've provided me uh, over the last couple months. And thank you again for connecting Chris and I. And without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Chris Myers. Chris, my man, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Hey, what's up, Nick? Thanks, man. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, man. Good. This is um, this is interesting talking to you because I've been I've I'm I'm 99 sure that we've played a couple shows together um, back in like. I want to say like the early 2000s, like four or five, something like that. I th- believe it was a uh, a festival or was it actually, um, was it an, uh, an indoor venue? I think we played at the TLA and or the Electric Factory in Oh, uh, yes. Uh-huh. So. Cool. Yeah. I, I forget how it ended up happening. 
I think we were sort of like we were sort of on the same circuit as you guys, but not you guys were a little at, at the time. You guys were a little bit above us, and then you guys you know took off, and we I started a podcast. So, but uh, <laughs> but um, well, we we I think we might have let met. Sorry, we might have met uh, that day at some point. I remember you discussing this. Uh, I don't know if at that time that you had it. To, you were actually doing this at that time, but you had discussed something like that. I think and. Um, you know, it was just a new direction. And I think I'm, you know, by the way, I really appreciate the show. It's really awesome. And well, the opportunity. You. And of course, thank man. you, man. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. So let's build, let's build a little bit of backstory. Um, so sure. I want to, I want the audience to sort of know who you are, where you, where you come from. You're, you're the drummer for Umphreys McGee. It didn't always, it didn't start there. So you came into the band a little bit later, but take us on the journey from sort of when you started playing, how you got into drumming um, uh, and sort of how you got the bug. It's always interesting to hear how people got turned on to playing to begin with. Okay. Yeah. Basically, uh, I uh, grew up in Chicago suburbs, Palatine, Illinois, and um, started playing at the age of eight and uh, was taking lessons over at a local drum store that is no longer around, but it was a, a great drum store called the Drum Pad, owned by Jim Strike, and um, I used to take that's lessons a great name there. For a, that's a great name for a drum shop. <laughs> I like it. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, and so, yeah, worries, man. And so, basically, grew up playing in the, you know, the local Chicago scene, and the uh, the you know the trends were changing over time in the late '80s, early '90s, and by high school, grunge hit. And wiped out all the hairband guys. And then uh, I ended up going that route. And then in college, I ended up getting a scholarship for music uh, to play, uh, you know, in the jazz studies program and a little bit of the classical percussion. And uh, started kind of getting more serious with it. And by the time I graduated, I was not making a living yet, but starting to play gigs um, around town. And then I went to grad school at DePaul, continued my studies in jazz performance and um, learned a lot from a lot of great teachers along the way. Ended up getting a, an opportunity after grad school to join a touring rock band called Umphreys McGee, of which I was not really familiar with at the time until some friends of mine told me about them. And then I went to uh, to look them up and noticed their previous drummer Mike Miro uh, was leaving to pursue med school. And so I noticed that the, uh, their management was just down the street from where I lived. So I decided to send my uh, my kid in because I really checked, I checked the music out, really loved it. And uh, it was a new path. I was paving way for myself. And uh, those guys are were crazy and dumb enough to hire me. <laughs> so I ended up joining the the band and uh, all the shenanigans began uh, 2003. And ever since I've been doing it, uh, we've been kind of, you know, working down to about 80 or so shows a year. And uh, we're very grateful uh, for each other and for the music that we put together. And very, very grateful for the fans. It's a, an amazing fan base. Uh, I've learned so much about the importance of why we play now it's not about you know always just being the uh the obscure artist so to speak it's it's a good balance of entertainment as well and making other people happy in your life 
Mm. Uh, and that really goes a long way. So yeah, we're still rocking it. And, um, I'm actually home for a week. I'm doing some lawn, uh, lawn care at my house. So that's good. <laughs> my, my grass was just dying. So I had to take <laughs> care of that. <laughs> All the important stuff. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And I love it. It's the little things, you know? So when you, I, w- I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, one, how did you find out that, that Umphreys was looking for a new drummer? Did, was it like on their website where they just like, Hey, we're looking for somebody to come fill Mike's shoes. Uh, it was, first of all told, uh, it was word of mouth and, okay. uh, somebody uh, actually my, my partner in a publishing company named Brian Abraham, he, uh, had told me about the band. So I have him to thank. And, um, uh, yeah, for sure. He told me at the end of 2002, um, after graduating with school and everything, he said, he thought I'd be a good fit for it. And it was kind of a quick window, uh, you know, of opportunities. I, I just kind of, I looked him up and started listening to the music and then decided to uh, pursue it, you know. And how big were they at the time? Uh, at the time, they were uh, really, they had definitely established themselves nationally for sure. Uh, some key and noteworthy performances at that time before that was uh, Bonnaroo, mm-hmm. uh, 2002, of which they went up and shared. I think they got a sit-in opportunity on stage with the band Mo mm-hmm. from upstate New York. And um, I love those. Guys. They're all yeah, great guys, and very very much a staple in 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 the uh, jam and rock scene. What year was the first so, Bonnaroo? Uh, was it 2000 or was it 2002? 2002 i believe so then i was because yeah. I, I saw then i saw them there in 2002 because I, I was at i guess that's the that was the first bonnaroo with like james brown and the meters and trey and the roots and umphreys and mm-hmm. and oh, i'm trying to think who else was there but i i do remember galactic that. galactic was there yeah for sure yeah. um yeah i i think it was more of a grassroots sort of thing it was you know, affiliated with uh, organizations like Rope Dope and you know, a lot of different entertaining uh, entertainment companies mm-hmm. uh, sponsoring the event. And it was much smaller at the time, and definitely more grassroots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's amazing how much it's blown up. Oh my gosh, it's just so huge now. I, I cannot believe it. I know it's insane. But the yeah. Um, so were were you really were you into that scene at all? Were you in? I mean, Alfred's is is in the jam scene, but you guys are. I th- I I look at you guys differently than I look at somebody like Widespread Panic or String Cheese or you know or or even Mo or any of these guys. Um, but were, so what what kind of stuff were you into? I mean, you you keep mentioning jazz studies. Were you playing a lot of just straight ahead jazz stuff? Yeah, at the time, I think I. I- I guess it's safe to say I was doing a lot of that. Um, in Chicago, you know, there's opportunities to do a variety of things, like any major city. But um, I think to make a living, it's a little more difficult to do just club dates and art music. So you find yourself doing a lot of, as they call them, jobbing gigs, weddings, um, corporate parties, bar mitzvahs, you know. Anything that involves you going in through the kitchen with your tux and your drums <laughs> on the cart. <laughs> yeah. So I did that for since I was in college, actually. Um, my drum teacher 
whose name is Bob Rummage and is actually in faculty, I think, at DePaul Amherst College. Um, he taught me a lot and took me under his wing and gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, thanks, Bob. Uh, so, yeah, basically a lot of that, you know, experience in Chicago led me to, I don't know, dedicate a lot of my time towards jazz. And I was playing with some big band, uh, uh, you know, a, a big band called uh, Rob Parton, uh, big band at the time, RPO, I believe it was called. And, um, you know, after that, it was, you know, just kind of once I joined Umphreys, it was kind of changing, going back, changing the tides, going back to rock music again, rediscovering uh, my more of the classics from Zeppelin to, uh, you know, Hendrix and, right. you know, anything modern that was reminding me of Umphreys, it was progressive. So I related it when I first heard Umphreys. Some of the things that it reminded me of was King Crimson mm-hmm. and Frank Zappa, um, you know, maybe a little Spyrogyra in there, you know, just some killer guitar riffs, uh, du- duet stuff, duo stuff that's like very, you know, some gun slinging kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, I was really impressed and kind of got away from, the, you know, the jazz. And I think the society as well change for me in more rock right you know in, a, in, in the rock world it was more vibrant kind of caveman kind of people you sure. know a little less i'm just kidding no it, <laughs> it was it's just just as intellectual as a jazz player but a little less maybe jaded and bitter at times when i would run into some of those jazz guys they're working hard and they don't always make a good living so right right there, i don't know the yeah the fact that umphreys is a jam band Let's let's just call it an improvisational band. Um, jazz obviously is an improvisational style, so you had that going for you. But getting into a band that's already established that have sort of developed their own way of communicating on stage, and it's one thing if you went into like a pop band where it's like, hey, this song's two and a half minutes long. Here's the changes. Here, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. You know, we're out. Versus going into something like Humphreys where it's like, okay, here's verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, bridge, and then we're going to jam on this thing, and then we're going to go to this thing, and then we're going to improv it for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how what was the learning curve for you, not only to learn the songs, but then also learning their improvisational style and learning sort of, let's call it like the language of, of Humphreys McGee? Absolutely. Um, I understand. And, and yes, there is definitely a language, uh, and there was a learning curve Um, unfortunately I didn't have a whole lot of time to learn it. Uh, I had to basically after the audition, uh, it took about uh, a couple weeks before I heard back from them, maybe a few weeks and it was right before the holidays. They already had to finish up their last run of shows with Mike and immediately in January after the new year's run in 2003, they had to switch drummers and I had to start, I had to rehearse for two weeks with them. And in that two weeks, I had to learn 50 songs. Jeez. So maybe and even 50 more. 50 difficult songs. Let's just, like, yeah. for people who don't listen to Humphreys, like, these songs are not, they're not, yeah. like, cut and dry tunes. Right. So the only way I was able to learn them with the little amount of time um, was muscle memory, uh, using sort of a, I don't have a photographic memory like some guy, some artists are brilliant like that, but, but I definitely have some elements of, of using 
my best abilities to try to just memorize the pieces uh, in my head as opposed to writing them out. I mm -hmm. did have to write out a few sections. Uh, if you do that sort of thing, um, I think it's great to, you know, ponder on paper and then try to play it. But I didn't really have the time. So I had to literally just absorb it like a sponge and just eat, sleep, live and breathe Umphreys for two weeks. And uh, ever since that experience, I had sort of built up my vocabulary and remembering, you know, things. And once I learned the songs, I then realized that they play each song differently, almost <laughs> every just slightly yeah. every night, which, uh, you know, threw another curveball. So I was like, okay, it was very much kind of similar to the spirit of Frank Zappa. You know, I always relate to him because he definitely demanded the high, uh, more than what the artist could even give out of them. He gave, he demanded 110% out of each player to, to learn what he was giving them and then he would change it and then they would have to just keep, you know, going with the evolution. And as far as the language, yeah, there are different things that Humphreys were were doing different things they were doing for hand signals to cue each other to come in and out of sections and improv um, to go up a key step or down a step to slow it down to speed it up um, to do double time or half time um, you know it's just some goofy hand signals that are not like really you know uh, it's not like common a common hand <laughs> common language you know on the across the board but it right but it is definitely a language nonetheless and it was part of the learning experience for sure yeah, yeah. so did you, so i think with all that i just had to you know absorb everything and just pay attention every moment to what everybody was was feeling on on the songs and mm -hmm. and just do my best i guess was there ever a, a part where you're like either a i can't learn all these tunes b you know or like, were you on the gig and like, how did you do on the first gig or the second gig? Are you just like blowing through changes and thinking, oh man, I'm going to get fired? Um, I was definitely nervous because I knew that these guys had a really big fan base and I have never really played in front of an audience that big with a, a true like artistic kind of project in a long, I mean, as far as I can remember at that time. And I was nervous for just not knowing all the songs. Right. Uh, but luckily, they were very uh, gracious at the time and like willing to just kind of work with me on what I could do. Mm -hmm. And then, and what also helps get things along, the, speed things along the way with the band and our, our shows are uh, covers. So we still to this day play covers, one to two, you know, a show, probably one most likely. And, and originally it was, just part of the <laughs> I mean when the band first started I think it was to sort of fill up the time needed allotted for that set right I think um, we've all but, done we all did that. <laughs> right but I think it turned out to be a, a big staple in our our sound and our our whole you know approach you know mm -hmm. just paying homage to music that people should know different artists you know all across the board and Umphreys is able to play different styles so I think it's it's really doing a service to, to the millennials of today, knowing the past a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at fish. I mean, they have probably, well, I don't know, 300 songs or something like that. And then, but they play a ton of covers. They probably play 
you know, four, five, six, seven covers a night sometimes. Yeah. I, I'm not really sure of how many, but uh, definitely. And, you know, it's just part of the, uh, I think, just sort of the yeah, culture of the the jam band and live touring band sound, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, when, when my band first started, same deal. It's like, you know, you, you play 70% covers, 30% originals, then you go to maybe 60, 40, and then you go 50, 50, and then, then you yeah. go 60, 40 original. And you're like, hopefully people are going to keep coming to the shows while <laughs> we're playing these original tunes. You know? Absolutely. That's the thing you, you know, covers bring people together. If if you have newcomers to the show and they, you know, they get a little exhausted from hearing all of your transitions of all the songs that only your your fans really, your hardcore fans know, um, you want to throw out some covers out there to just, you know, for some ear candy for people to like ease their mind from all the the songs they're not familiar with. Right, right. <laughs> it brings people together. So a little life um, raft. So we did that uh, for quite a while when I was playing in the first couple months, and yeah, I was very nervous. I mean, Mike is him was a very talented and gifted soul, um, and uh, he was a big part of the direction of the rhythmic aspects of of Umphrey's, and he laid down quite a, a groundwork. And you know, I was I had some big shoes to fill, so. I was going to say, it's a tough situation. I, I was just talking to Tris and Bowden who joined Chicago and that sure. was, that was more of a sort of a hostile takeover because they, they kicked Danny Seraphin out of the band. So th- it's not the same situation with you, but he had, you know, tremendous respect for, for Danny Seraphin and, and was a, a fan by all means, a fan. And he's coming in to fill these shoes and, and was talking about, you know, how, how difficult that is because Danny Seraphin shaped so much of, the sound of Chicago, much like Mike shaped the sound, you know, a lot of the early stuff, obviously with Humphreys. But now, sure. I mean, you've been in the band almost twice as long as he was now, right? I believe so. Uh, yeah. It's be four, 14 years, uh, next, no, actually 15 years next year. Wow. Uh, yeah. I Time can't flies. believe it. <laughs> it really does. So what, um, I, I read something about when you guys started working together, you started doing some sort of songwriting, like Lego songwriting or yeah. something like that. So can, talk about that concept for a little. I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, I how I would describe it is basically, like you said, it's, it's little phrases and conjointed pieces of of ideas that end up, end up being put together in the songwriting process. And... It's done in sort of a democratic fashion with these with the band in that we work out the parts, put them up against each other, transition from one to the other, mix and match a little bit, and see what works, what doesn't. Um, and that was kind of how it was done for a long time. Not sure why or how that started, but that's just the way. It, that's what I had to learn at you know going into the band that it was part of that. That was the process. So. Um, I think we eventually sort of made it, made it our, our distinction, I guess, you know, we, we would piece these ideas together and somehow it would work, uh, sort of a collage or, a you know, some kind of architectural, uh, marvel of, you know, very long, sophisticated forms of songs, but it mm-hmm. was, it was fun and playful 
again, in the spirit of guys like Frank and, you know, and, and, and King Crimson and just sort of building on sections dynamically after having put it, the pieces together was how we did it. And I don't know, I think it was fun, you know, and it still is. I thought, although I, I think we've sort of matured over the years and maybe did less of the, the Legos, we still do it, but we just do it sparingly now and just kind of create longer pieces of work for a verse chorus, you know, solo section. Right. That's what I was um, going to ask. Has the, has the songwriting process changed? A little bit. And, and, and I got, you know, I'll admit that we've, we've tried to doing different things for different reasons. Um, we tried to do, you know, and we try to do a lot of various things because we want to keep it fertile. You know, we want to keep things, you know, still enticing to the ear and not grinding on the same sort of sound, the same, you know, same kind of song structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit unorthodox, yeah, because a little non-conventional because we uh, we're kind of going against the pop culture and the pop savvy formula, but we sort of were in an era and a situation where we didn't have to worry about that that direction as much. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, we would do definitely the Legos uh, and put pieces of ideas together. Um, it would work great between Brennan and Jake and Joel and, you know, the contributions of, of Ryan and, and Andy and myself, you know, we, we try to like continue to, to have our voices in there, uh, collaboratively, you know, and and that's good. It creates a good morale and, um, you know, so yeah, I think that that was a big part of the, the original, you know, songwriting approach. Well, and I think that there's something interesting about, Everyone having maybe not equal parts, but at least having some sort of creative input. I mean, I think that I think that the band that I was in for years is sort of the same in the same vein as Humphreys. So like same style of music, sort of, um, but same writing techniques and things like that. And for me, I always felt a lot more connected with the music than if I was going to play. Like if I got a gig playing with somebody who wrote all the tunes and all, and they're just like, "Here's the songs. You can just play them." And right. So I, I I like hearing that perspective from another drummer of saying, okay, yeah, we're we're working on these these things together, and and how that you know how that works for you as a drummer to put your own input in to say, hey, you know, I want to, okay, here's your piece and here's your piece. I'm gonna put these, I'm gonna put this thing in here, and maybe that doesn't work, but I'm gonna try something else and try something else rather than them handing you something and saying, here's what you're gonna play, make it feel good, you know. <laughs> for sure, yeah, that's one thing that's. Also distinct about Humphreys is that we managed to kind of take it back to the old school garage band days, you know, where bands would work it out, sweat it out in the garage basement or whatever, and do it the old fashioned way collaboratively um, and just kind of, you know, keep that that democracy, you know, intact. And, um, you know, I think that it's still served us well doing it that way and. You know, I think that it's a great experience because you learn to really um, embrace other people's uh, approach and uh, contributions. So, and I think it's yeah. a learning process too. You start, you say, "Oh, I, you know, I never thought I could learn that, or I never thought about approaching this songwriting process this way, or you know, because everybody has everybody has a different sort of style of how they're how they're approaching songwriting." For sure, you know. Yeah, so 
so we just sort of, uh, you know, we would just write and record for weeks at a time when we'd be off the road, we were younger and we still do that once in a while. We'll go and do a retreat at, at Jake's studio up in Niles, Michigan. Um, we'll collaborate together on and off the road sometimes and, um, you know, try to keep, uh, keep it, keep it real here. Keep it going. <laughs> so what did, keep the wheels in motion? Yeah. So when you're home, um, cause I'm guessing you're not doing a lot of shedding when you're, when you're on the road. So when you're home, other than when you're not doing yard work, um, or working <laughs> on your grass, uh, <laughs> So are, are do you still have, are you still finding time to practice? Are you still, because I think it's, and the reason why, I, let me preface this, preface it with this, that I think a lot of times people think, man, I want to play music full time and I'm just going to get up every morning and I'm going to play drums all day. And then I'm going to either go tour or I'm going to, you know, do this or do that. And then, you know, the days that I'm not home or not on the road, I'm just going to, I'm going to have all these, all this time to shed. And I'm like, well, if you've been on the road for an extended period of time, you realize that like, okay, you don't shed anywhere near as much as you think you're going to. And when you come home, you have all this shit to do that you didn't do when you were on the road for two and a half months or whatever the case may be. So how does it work for you? Are you still finding a lot of time to shed? Are you still finding a lot of time to like, to keep pushing the craft forward? Or is it more just focusing on, on sort of keeping the band moving? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, but, um, over the last few years, I will admit that I would take a lot of time off from the road um, for fear of burnout factor. Mm -hmm. um, but I am definitely one of the guys in the band who likes to do side work um, over the years. And I've cut that back considerably. I think a lot of the side work sort of just kept my mind moving in a musical direction, keep mm -hmm. working, write, writing and rediscovering things um but as far as practicing and shedding um i honestly don't think i do enough of that but i'm actually quite all right with that because when you come home you have to have another life yeah to go to and really know how to function in life uh and it's all you know all of its dealings and if you're always just focusing on your one path your one passion and, and everything else that's a beautiful thing but there's so much more to life too that you need to to embrace and learn a lot of life lessons you know by doing other things than just playing mm -hmm. you know um just going for a hike you know getting off the radar putting your phone down getting off the social media um talking to people you're you know visiting friends and family uh i don't know go on boat trips go golfing do you know stuff like that right and uh and even if you don't do hobbies you know if you want to just you know do things that keep your mind going like stay stay organized at home i don't know just <laughs> <laughs> no i get i mean I, it's like just as important as being a play back to me playing is is the easy part right you know dealing with all the other deadlines and things of which you know require paying bills on time you know you gotta always keep on that and paying bills that's not important you know you don't have to do that <laughs> you know and i guess just kind of being able to adapt mm -hmm. you know i think there was a time that 
and I've talked to other people about this too, about sort of struggling with that, a feeling that like if drums isn't everything in my life, then I'm sort of letting the drum gods down and I'm failing at on some level. And then I'm like, you know what? I, I love playing and I love touring and I like doing all these things, but I like other things too, you know? And that's, yeah, that's absolutely. And I think that, I don't know if you, have you ever gone through a time like that where you're like, if I'm not playing drums and I feel like I'm wasting my time and, you know, or have have you always sort of maintained that balance? I wouldn't say I've maintained the balance, um, but I definitely strive for it and not always have been successful. Been through a lot of trial and error, you know, mm-hmm. through through life, honestly. Um, and I've had some ups and downs. Um, at this moment, I'm I'm currently on an up, and I'm really uh, happy with this. Um, <laughs> with the house being a homeowner. Um, but I think that sometimes you look at maybe your influences and maybe they're non-musicians. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're people who are very social with their interactions with people. Um, that's just to me almost as important as playing music yeah. and, and playing it, you know, at your highest level. Um, there's a lot of books about it too, that you can read it. I don't, I just think it keeps things, it's sort of a reality check to, to just remember, you know, that when you are willing to engage with others and discover yourself and like accept things and deal with things other than, you know, advancing your, your, your playing level, it's your playing level does get stronger as a result of all that other non music related work. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you just keep your brain, you know, healthy and functioning and working on other things, um, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of it, really. You know, I just, I try to keep, you know, um, a good path moving forward. And I've been through a lot of, you know, lo- a lot of uh, weird obstacles and things and, and made pa- bad choices. But, you know, I think that it's a matter of how you, re- how you react to it and how you bounce back. And then, mm-hmm. and then it makes you appreciate life that much more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. More with Chris Myers in just a second, but first, a word from our sponsors. This session is brought to you by my good friends at DW Drums, and I got to tell you, I just picked up a new PDP concept kit, and this kit sounds amazing. It's the dark and dark wood and natural wood. I got 24, 13, and 16, and it is an amazing sounding kit. And right after I bought it, coincidentally, Kurt Biscara said, oh, that's the kit I use all the time on my session. So he, uh, if you don't take my word for it, take Kurt Biscara's. He's using it on all sorts of sessions there in the LA area. So be sure to check him out at dwdrums.com and pacificdrums.com. Speaking of the LA area, Musicians Institute has been in the LA area since the 1970s, offering world-class music instruction and education and now they have a completely new center they have a new midi area they have 
all sorts of drum sets. They have world-class faculty like Kenny Arnoff. They have world-class facilities, all sorts of electives and classes that you can take to further your music career. And there have been so many people who I've had on the podcast who are MI graduates. So definitely worth checking out if you want to take your playing and your career to the next level. And you can learn more about Musicians Institute by going to mi.edu. Now more with Chris Myers. What were maybe some of the things that that maybe some of the mistakes or some of some of the hurdles that you had to get over to keep things pushing forward? Well, you know, there's a lot of personal things we mm-hmm. all go through. Um, you just kind of obsess over things in your mind and negative things, uh, thoughts, feelings, um, especially with the touring life. It's not uh, exactly uh, as luxurious as people. Some people perceive it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really like you're living in a basically a submarine on wheels with <laughs> other other members, you know, whether it's a van or or a tour bus um, and doing it for more than a decade definitely puts you in a different caliber of of uh, species, <laughs> in my opinion. You, you learn to. Um, I think you know, it's like very important that you get away from the music for a while and put mm-hmm. your, you know, your instrument down and, and try to, you know, live life. But I think that you just, sometimes you, you worry that you're going to be doing the touring life forever and ever and ever. Uh, and you might feel stuck sometimes. Maybe you're, you're, you're also not as inspired with what you're doing and creating as an artist mm-hmm. and uh, you can hit plateaus so it's how you deal with that. It's also relationships. They come and go in your life when you're touring as long as you are in that time span, especially in that time in your life from your like mid twenties to like, and, and beyond, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 40 now. So, you know, I started with the band when I was probably like 27, 26 right. and things have definitely changed and you, you lose touch with people in your life. Um, that you thought you would know for a long time. And it's very, I don't know, it, it, you know, sometimes you lose loved ones. Uh, and not to get deep and dark, but th- these are the things you deal with, but you don't ever have the time to quite deal with them when you're always constantly touring. So right, right. we've managed to, you know, sort of lift ourselves up from the bootstraps and keep just keep pushing on and, and appreciating things and being, you know, a little more grateful for what we have or, what we've gone through, good or bad, um, because that really might end up helping you get through some real serious times. Because mm-hmm. um, touring is no joke. I mean, you, you don't just go out there and just, um, you know, blow every, you know, blow off life. And uh, but there are times where you get a little, you know, immersed in some, you know, uh, some things, and who, you know, it doesn't make you a, a less of a person. It's just you just have to find your way through things. That's all. Mm-hmm. I, I think that just like anybody in any job situation, I'm sure, you know, people deal with that. Well, and I think it's um, important to, to talk about it because like you said, it's, it's touring is not as luxurious and amazing as everyone sounds. I mean, even at, even at the highest level where every, like guys are flying in private jets and have their own bus, like it's still, it's still rough. It's still lonely. It's still, it's, you know, sometimes it's like Groundhog Day. And so, 
and yeah. I and I think a lot of people who have never done that before think, oh my god, if I can just get to like, if I can get a bus tour, everything will be amazing, and my life will be awesome, and I'll just be getting like whisked away to this gig, and you know, and, and everything's gonna be milk and honey. But it's it's hard, man, especially as you start to get older and you have a wife or you have kids and and all that sort of stuff. It's a it's not an it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so I, you know, I appreciate you talking about that. I, I don't think that I, and part of this podcast or all of this podcast is to sort of show the good and the bad, you know, to, yeah, to for sure. give everyone a realistic, uh, perception. This isn't a highlight reel. This is, this is the truth. So let's talk about, you know, how things are great on the road and how things can suck on the road or just being a drummer or a musician in general. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it sucks, you know? Right. I think it's just. It's just a life lesson that, um, you know, you learn a bunch of life lessons sort of, you know, at at the moment. You know, you don't always have people discussing the way to cope with it and, and having experts around you tell you how to, to deal with the psychology. You just have to go through the experience sometimes in a natural process. And it's not all it's can be it can be joyful and it can be also just fully as painful. Mm-hmm. Um and, and lack of communication sometimes and how to interact with each other in an organization can cause, you know, um, a great deal of confusion. But fortunately, if you're an extraordinary group of guys, such as, you know, the band I'm in, uh, and if they're smart enough, people end up working out, working their strengths, strengths and, we, you know, like they work on the weaknesses, but do it in a way uh, with respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's very important. Uh for any band to really survive, I mean, no matter what level you're at, if you can just get along and and, and find some middle ground and be dipl- diplomatic, it's mm-hmm. it's very important. Um, and you know, along with that, I think when you do get the uh, success that you worked so hard for, uh, and when you're in that state, you then have to remember not to start to go down the you know the rabbit hole of like it's always greener on the other side mentality, which yeah. I think we've all been through that and at some way, shape or form, you always tend to want to wish what you don't have and you always continue on that path. And if you progress, you'll just never find peace of mind. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of musicians, particularly artists and musicians, are separate from a lot of other occupations because we 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 got to work, you know, really really extra hard to to make it in this crazy aloof business um and once we do we have to make sure that we don't let it get to our head Mm -hmm. and it's easy to happen i mean there's you know if you start to wish that you had more of this or more of that and you're you know it's not good enough and um that's a common thing you know and you have to learn how to like start to appreciate get back to square one and appreciate the little things and build from there because some mm-hmm. people have blowups or blowouts because they they keep striving things and they're doing a great job but they're not giving themselves enough credit right right that's a it's very important in, as a successful person you know mm-hmm. uh, a happy not even successful i mean a happy content person <laughs> right Bro, so it's yeah, easy I to... don't know, that's kind of part of that experience i suppose you know? i think it's easy to to sit there and and wish for other things or you get what you want and it's not what you thought it was. And you say, well, I'd probably be happier if I did this thing. And then you do that thing. And you're like, well, I'm not happy with this because you know, I want to do this other thing or whatever it is. I think that's human nature of, 
you know, if but the key is like you said, except or or being uh, mindful of the the little things and being appreciative for the things that you have and grateful. Now, yeah, a little more positive mm-hmm. than negative. Uh, weighing in on that because you can always count the number of people, you know, like like what the draw was this time versus the last time and analyze that, you know, mm-hmm. until the sun goes down or whatever, until the sun comes up in our case. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that it's good to do that. And it's a business aspect where you keep wanting to, to build your markets, but you know, you also have to understand all the other variables when you book that date in that particular location. Are there other influences you know, causing it to be a little weaker on a, on a weekend night or, or a weeknight. It's doesn't make sense why you're there. I'm sure there's, there's a reason. So you just make the best of it mm-hmm. and try not to dwell on it and, and, you know, and pout too much about it. Just, just try to push through and learn from it. And I mean, it's just a, like a series of adjustments and trial and error in this business. That's really it, you know? Yeah. So when you said and, and the and the industry changes too, you know, so you gotta adjust to that. Oh, it's constantly changing, yeah. Yeah. You would mention about wanting something or, or the goal being this or the goal being that. So for you, when you were in your twenties, what was the goal to get into a big band and be touring around the country in a tour bus? Like was that was that what you were hoping happened, or did that just happen to come your way? Uh honestly, I didn't really dawn on me that I'd even have that opportunity. Uh, I thought I was going to be doing studio work and staying local mm. Chicago. Um, I just decided to take a big leap of faith and just make a change and just go for it. Um, I did not intend or expect to do the touring life with a rock band or a progressive rock band, however you want to say it. But um, I did not want to do that uh, like entirely as long as I have been doing, but I, I don't know. I just, I just felt like it became something really, uh, extraordinary and amazing. And mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm still here to tell the story, you know, nice. um, it's still going, we're still growing, um, exponential, exponentially. Exponent- <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard word to say. Is that exponentially? And yeah. so, exponentially is yeah or whatever it is anyway um yeah i definitely love you know the touring life and you've learned about you learn about the culture and you meet some of the the legends of certain genres and people it's really interesting you know mm-hmm. so were you i mean at that age you were like this is all i'm gonna do i'm gonna play music professionally but not necessarily on the road no yeah not necessarily on the road. i was just thinking you know, I would do some shows, a couple weekend runs here and there with different artists, be like a freelancing artist. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what happened was is a lot of our people would would like to do that. But at the time of, in the industry when I joined, it was extremely competitive and hard to do. And actually kind of the well was running dry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was the beginning of the downloading, you know, the whole Napster thing. It was yeah, kind of like yeah, yeah. Y2K. It was like, oh, no, you know, <laughs> everything changed after that. And, you know, free downloads, ruining the industry. Record labels are hemorrhaging, you know, they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And technology changed for the better for all all across the board for musicians to use any social media um, 
marketing strategies and combine it with with music downloads mm-hmm. and giving free music out, which became actually an entity in itself. Um, it builds your numbers, it builds your following and your presence. Um, and of course, nowadays, I would assume a lot of artists, young artists who are being advised to, you know, to, to build their, their career, they're being told they have to do that, you know? Right, right. Um, so when I was younger, when I first joined, things were just getting started in that direction and the old school ways were getting kind of going out of phase where you would rely on the big record label to give you, you know, a, a wealth of opportunities and take care of your, you know, your, your, uh, financial, uh, needs and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, with the condition that they had some percentage of your creative control. You know, right. I think that, Things changed as well for that. You just people started kind of creating their own record labels, their own, you know, independent uh, path. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think everything is that way now. You know, yeah. yeah, like you don't need a publisher for for your book, or you don't need to, you know, if you want to put out a show or anything, you can put it on YouTube, and you know, you don't need to, you don't need to get through NBC or ABC or CBS or something like that to put your to put your show on. So which I think it's yeah. good. I think it's a good thing. So you would mention uh, you're getting ready to go back out. So tell me about the tour real quick. Uh, the tour just ended for the spring, uh, and now we're entering summer, and it sort of begins on the 18th of May. Uh, we're playing the Norva in Norfolk, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, we're doing Baltimore after that and Hampton Beach Casino in Hampton, New Hampshire. Um, we're doing a lot of, you know, just weekend runs, four shows a week. Yeah. We tend to do just that. And uh, we're just doing, uh, you know, after that, we start festival circuit. You know, we do uh, summer camp, which is Memorial Day weekend, um, which is a big festival um, in, uh, Chillicothe, Illinois, which is near Peoria. And, uh, it's a tradition and a staple for Humphreys. We've been doing that for even long before I joined. Um, so then after that we have, you know, we continue with the festival circuit and play Bonnaroo. Um, we play, you know, between those dates, we do some dates like in Columbia, South Carolina and the mountain music fest. Uh, which is out in Morgan, near Morgantown, West Virginia, um, in, uh, in a rafting area. It's pretty oh, nice. awesome. So we'll be doing a late night there. Yeah, it's going to be a fun summer. I mean, that's just the beginning of it. And then right. Nice. You guys have three nights through, at Red Rocks? Yeah, three nights in July, which is huge for us. It's colossal. So it's going to be a great, our best ever our best yet, you know, the, the lineup's incredible. Nice. Uh, Snarky Puppies on that with us. So good. It's another amazing band. Those guys are amazing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Truly, yeah. Um, so for anyone who wants to check that out, they can go to umphreys.com or just umphreys.com forward slash tour to find that U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S.com forward slash tour. And so what? So are you teaching in Nashville? Do you teach private lessons or do you not do that? I don't currently teach anyone private lessons. I used to when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I haven't planned on it anytime soon just because my, again, I would love to share anything I can for whatever it is that I can share. Um, but I just don't have time. Yeah. I don't blame you. Man. Um, but I am doing a drum clinic, uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania on May 15th at the, uh, world of music drums or music store and the drum department. Um, I'm very, very stoked about that. Nice. So yeah. that's coming up and I got to get my, my whole clinic, uh, game together again. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that just like reminded I me. I gotta, I gotta put this stuff together. I have to tell jokes. I got to do impressions. You know, I have to entertain people in a small room. It's terrifying. You got to dance, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I have that. And, but as far as teaching, I haven't planned on it. Um, I'm just trying to learn and, and Nashville is a great place right now. I'm excited. I'm, I haven't even really gotten around to to discover it yet because, um, I've been touring all month or all year. When When did you move there? I uh, bought a house January the 6th, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch and, of, I mean, like, uh, Chris Cool is from OAR is there. Um, oh, that's right. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Ray, uh, Ray Luzier from Corn is there. Uh, who else did I just talk to? I mean, obviously, there's like a ton of drummers like inside of Nashville, but these guys are sort of in the burbs. I'm trying to think who else. Um, I just talked to somebody who's in Nashville. Anyway. Well, Keith, Keith Arlox and Keith out is there. in Franklin, which is 20 minutes from here where I live. Um, um, you know, there's a lot of big recording names. Um, actually, some that you might not even realize actually live here uh, that are from the West Coast because there's a huge resurgent migration of musicians coming from the from L.A. to here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was one of them. I was living in L.A. for two years prior to the January move. Um I moved from Chicago in 2014 um, and, you know, haven't been back since, but I visit my family there and I still keep in touch with people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, you were only in LA for two years? Yeah, two years and wish it was longer, but, you know, I could always visit there and deal with just, you know, less like likely chances of being in traffic for less consecutive days. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you, man. I do not. It's a blame soul you. pressure out there. It's really, I feel for people there. It's just, I mean, it's unbearable for some, you know, and oh, I, no. I, I could almost admit that I couldn't, I mean, unless you get up really, there's a certain pocket, as I say, probably somewhere around 10 AM till about noon. Mm-hmm. If you're any, any of the, Anyways, you're. It's probably the the best time to drive. But yeah. anywhere from like, you know, one p.m. till about eight p.m., you're you're screwed. Yeah, it's brutal. It's definitely you're brutal. Fucked. Yeah, it's beautiful weather though. Any- <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I encourage everybody to go out, check you guys out. Uh, like I said, go to umphreys.com. You can find out the tour dates and all the information about the band and all that kind of stuff. And Chris, I want to thank you. First of all, I want to thank Jimmy Chamberlain for connecting us. Uh, but I also want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, it's I really, I really like when things like this come full circle where I'm like, Oh, I think we played together 10 years ago and you know, well before this podcast ever existed or I even thought about doing it. But now here we are sitting here talking drums on it. So, uh, but I do appreciate yeah, you. Congratulations. Taking the time, 
congratulations, by the way. This is this is great. Well, thank you. It's not too often people do these sort of things and really open up open up the forum and talk about life and not always just about you know drum instruction. Right. Uh, so that's really cool. And yeah, I'd like to also once again thank uh, Jimmy also for for even thinking of me and uh, also for the inspiration. Uh, he was one of my my big drum heroes, you know, in high school growing up and mm. even in present time, he still continues to evolve both as a player and as a businessman. Yeah. Um, he's quite the impressive businessman uh, and entrepreneur, uh, I guess you would call it that. So um, I haven't seen him in a while and I wish him all the best. And yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, you having me as well, Nick. Of Thank course, you. man. It was my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, yeah, when you're when you're out on the West Coast, I'll have to, I'll have to come to see you guys. Definitely. Yeah, you're always welcome, man. Come to my house. We'll uh, we'll hang out. I got a I, the soundproof room really came together nicely here. Nice. I, uh, I have, and that might be another motivator for me to practice. Now I actually want to practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So. Well, cool. Well, Chris, uh, thank you again. Like I said, I appreciate you taking the time and hopefully we can connect again soon. I do too, man. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too, man. That's a wrap with Chris Myers. And to get the show notes for everything that we talk about and links to the things that we talk about, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 270. Also, if you would like to contribute to the podcast and you would like to help support the podcast, you can do that by going to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And there are ways that you can support on a monthly basis everywhere from a dollar a month to a hundred dollars a month. And believe me, every dollar helps. So if you say, oh, I can only do a dollar a month or two dollars a month, that it, it helps. Every bit helps. And we do appreciate it. And for some higher tier uh, patronage you can get some cool gifts t-shirts and insider things and all that stuff so learn more about that at drummersresource.com forward slash support and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it and i'll be talking to you soon peace